I'm Science Mike, and you're listening to Midrosh NYC. Hey, welcome back to the Midrash NYC podcast. Uh, we are so grateful for all of your support, uh, all of your interest, and uh, for so many of you subscribing uh, to Midrash NYC in the first week. Uh, we are thankful that you guys are out there listening, and if you haven't done so yet, like us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and continue to subscribe because we have some great podcasts coming up. So without further ado, I want to give you part two of Science Mike, where you will be hearing Mike's conversion and the idea and fact, as Mike will say, that Jesus washed his feet on the beach one night. All of us here uh, in this room are familiar with your story about your, I guess, your reconversion, so to speak, yeah. uh, with with being with Rob Bell. and. Right. Uh, and which is a pretty amazing story, which I'll give you a chance to speak on for a couple minutes. But how much did your your Bible study teaching, your conversion of your daughter, while you weren't a believer, contribute to you maybe finding your way back or moving full circle back to um, when, back to a belief? I mean, I was really conflicted about whether I told my kids about God. Hmm. Like, do I give them the comforting lie that makes their life easier, that makes social cohesion possible, or do I teach them how to actually think? Wow. So, so I yeah. tried to split the difference. I, I gave them why I once believed, but I also held the door open that not everybody believes these things. Okay. Trying to avoid setting them up for the fall that I had. So they were always aware of other perspectives. Um, and you used the message translation, I guess, to do this. We did. <laughs> I did when my, talk to my kids from the message usually. That's very uncanny because it's just they understand it. Yes. Do it. Yeah. Um, so, um, it. I don't know. I did. I don't. I don't know what led me back. That's the thing. I. But but in order for me to come back, by the time that happened. I was so at peace with humanism. Were you re- okay? There was no yearning remaining. The only thing I had was: is there some way, maybe when the kids move out, I can stop pretending? That's where I'd gotten to. Like I'm actually tired of pretending to be a Christian. Um, and um, obviously, my wife knew at that point, and it was scary at first. But our marriage didn't fall apart. My mom knew. She kept saying she was praying for a miracle. But I didn't get like ostracized from the family. So I was foreseeing some point in the future, could I just be myself again? So there wasn't actually the trajectory of me and God, right, had kind of plateaued. There was no curve this way. That was going back. I was totally, absolutely comfortable in my skin as an unbeliever at that point. So really, so and again, I'll let you describe the situation. It, it was a bit of a miracle then in some sense that, that you came back to faith. So can you tell us a little bit about that experience of coming back to faith yeah. from there? Um, I was uh, on a trip to NASA. Um, not like you do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, like NASA had done. a social media summit that was their uh, Dryden Flight Research Center, which is now called, I think, the Armstrong Research Center. Um, cause Neil's a cool guy. Uh, but so it was the first time it'd been open to the public and they invited people who had high social media scores in astronomy or space exploration mm. to come to NASA. And since I like left faith in my own mind, 
physics and astronomy were really my god methadone. Mm. Like the telescope you were being of my worship. To the Vatican, yes, so, yeah. exactly. Yeah. So it's like yeah. I'm going to like what nerd <laughs> doesn't want to go to NASA? Like yeah. I remember telling Jay, I was like, "Can I, I got to go to NASA? Can I?" And she's like, "Yes, of course <laughs> you can go to NASA." So I like booked a flight. Like that was all you had to pay your plane ticket, but they had a place for stay, all that kind of stuff. Oh, and I was so excited. Like I'm going to, to NASA. And a couple of days later, a friend of mine called me and he said, um, Rob's on a conference for 50 people. It's a new thing he's trying. It's going to be called Two Days with Rob Bell. And we need some help testing the web store to make sure it's not going to crash. Because um, I'm like a really good computer nerd, right? So uh, so if, you'll, if you can do that, we'd love for you to be here. We'd love for you to come. So I was the first person to ever get a ticket to one of these things because I helped like build the software that makes it happen. So, uh, so I, the dates were like this right after NASA. So I was already going to be in LA. Like I didn't, I was already, like it was too convenient. It was easy. Super easy. So, uh, went to NASA for two days and <laughs> it was I hate that the story everyone wants to hear about the beach because the NASA was freaking cool. <laughs> that was uh, that was the heavenly part of the whole thing. <laughs> uh, so, but I got to see the like the best nerds in the world do what they do. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like this is like it really was like yeah, I'm with the right crew. Like now I got to hang out with a bunch of Christians. Like what are they gonna do? Like these guys are making planes that won't crash even if the pilot screws up. You know they. Uh, we got literally got to see like the device they used in the desert for the Apollo crew to test the lunar landing. Like, got to put our hand on the thing. At one point, we're on a runway, and they say, everybody look this way and don't turn around. We're going to remind you you signed, signed a waiver that authorized the use of deadly force. Because they were wheeling some secret bird out onto the runway to test it. Really? So we always had to look this way. The whole so time. So you, you were getting like the, the, the real innards, like the, the real good stuff. The, oh, yeah. No, it was, the, the, we got buzzed by a supersonic aircraft to feel a sonic boom. And I mean, it was, it was did, nerd nirvana. The presence of God. <laughs> <laughs> did you get thrown backwards and stuff when you, with, with the. Well, it was way up. Okay, so okay, okay. You just but they could, did, you then they feel brought it. another one. It seemed like right on front of us. And then it turned sharply and fired its afterburners. And that did like buffet us. Like it was. I'm assuming it was piloted by Tom Cruise. It was actually, there were all these test pilots, to me, many of whom were women. So that's the other thing, okay. is in my church context, like, women are the these, like, property of men, effectively. And at NASA, the women are just badasses. They're you know dark. what I mean? Like they're, I mean, te- test pilots, yeah. Yeah, or I sat, with, I sat with an astrophysicist who worked on the Cassini probe. Like, her day-to-day job was, like analyzing images of Saturn no human has ever seen. She's the first person in the world to see new sites in the universe. Like, wow. Right. Like I, I am quivering with excitement. <laughs> I can't... I have to just wiggle all of my limbs for a second. So, I, that, so I do that, and then I go to Laguna to meet with pastors and theologians. Uh, and I was just like, this is going to be a letdown. so lame. Yeah. How low is the bar set? Like, but, so the only reason I agreed to go is, it, for those of you who are listening and don't have any idea who Rob Bell is, he's a, he's a church figure, pretty well-known pastor, but he's really well-known for just phenomenal creativity. 
And part of the conference was to talk about creativity as a methodology. And I worked in advertising, and I was pretty successful, but I always had this terrible fear that the idea I just said would be the last one I'd ever have, because I have no idea where they come from. And so Rob just is like an idea machine. So if I could steal his idea playbook, that was worth pretending to be a Christian for a couple days. Sure. And so I got to the conference. <laughs> it's going to go back and make the next bird that was right. being tested in NASA. It's going to be no amazing. No big deal. Do so. you believe in Santa Claus? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so about how you write. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, and it, it, he did not disappoint. Like, the, the first part of the conference was really free of religious gobbledygook. It was all about creativity. Some pretty interesting ideas that I hadn't heard about human consciousness that were secular in origin. Huh. And I was like, this is this is surprisingly not lame. And then Rob started talking about atheism. And it got super lame. And it, the whole room like, got energized as Rob would like throw these like anti-atheism quips. So, uh, and he still uses some of these, and Rob and I are friends, so... I know if he ever hears me, he's heard me say this in person, but like he would say like uh, evolution could tell you why you have a tail, but it can't tell you why you find that interesting. And like, it was like, people be like, yeah, that's right. Like uh, these people that like 20 minutes ago seemed really smart. And I was like, evolution, we were favored because we have a prefrontal cortex that models the future. We have a space-time model of consciousness our curiosity as our defining evolutionary successful feat, evolution describes better why we're curious than why we don't have a tail. Like that's just factually yeah, accurate, yeah, right. right? And the more stuff he would say, I'm just sitting there and I'm actually getting mad because I, as an atheist, stuck up for Christians against other atheists because they would build straw men out of faith right. to make it easy to dismiss. And absence he, of evidence is right. not evidence of absence. And then so. I would sit like with these Christians, and they're doing the same thing. Yeah. They're talking about an atheism that I've never encountered. They said scientists believe eventually we'll have all the answer through science. I'm like, I've literally never met a scientist who thinks who eventually we're that. going to have all the answers. Literally never. These are people who are compelled to humility because the more they learn about the universe the more ignorant they feel at the most fundamental levels. And so I finally like raised my hand like a good Southern boy and basically said, Hey, look, I don't want to like make a fuss, but I'm a Southern Baptist atheist. And I really, and Rob was like, what? You're a what? (laughs) I'm a Southern Baptist atheist. And uh, you got it all wrong. And I, for like 10 minutes, like, took apart everything he just said. And if I may say, pretty convincingly. What were other people in the room doing at that point? Uh, pin drop silence. Okay, so a little Swords, bit uncomfortable. <laughs> well, that's what I expected. <laughs> yeah, I expected, yeah. like, a, but I, I sort of said my piece, and I mean, it was silent. And I went, well, this is fun. I'm about to be ejected from the Christian party. And Rob goes, um, thanks for sharing. And for being honest, I think we all needed to hear that. And there were these like groans of affirmation mm. from the people in the room. And I was like, well, that's kind of, kind of a curveball here. Because um, the last thing I said, so how can a person who understands anything about how the universe works possibly believe in any God? 
That was my last sentence to Rob. Which, for you, it would have been a lot easier. Well, thank you for your time. <laughs> you can go ahead and leave. And all of a sudden, Rob goes, we needed to hear that. Goes, we need to hear that. And then goes on this like speech about, like, you're obviously super smart. You're obviously really dialed in. I've been studying science pretty intensely because of a book I'm working on. And you've just thrown science at me I've never heard. Mm. Um he said, and you're so good at science. He said, your whole life, probably even as a Christian, you've been able to master your reality by categorizing everything. Uh, he said, but there's something in your experience that goes beyond your ability to categorize. And I know that because you're across the country in a room with a pastor. Um, and he said, there are, there's something that you're not standing over, but it is standing over you. And you're not the one with the clipboard with the white coat. Oh, boy. He said, there's inductive reasoning and there's deductive reasoning. He said, I call this abductive reasoning because it abducts you and takes you somewhere else. Oh, boy. Uh, And he said, so here's what I'm going to invite you to do. He said, you've been told if you don't believe a bunch of specific things about God, you're out. And so you've followed that prophecy. Here's what I'm going to tell you. Take another box in your mind. And in this box... Just put everything you don't know, the things that you aren't certain about, and label that box God. And if that's all you can do, I'm going to tell you what no one else in the church has told you so far. That's enough. Because you're already living a Jesus life. He said, you told me you wouldn't tell people why you don't believe because you don't want to harm their faith. He said, that's one of the most sacred and beautiful things I've ever heard. So when he said that, I like felt God again. Uh, now I didn't know it at the time. I had enough research. I understand what actually happened is Rob forced through a linguistic association the latent God circuits in my brain, the neurological connections forged for thirty years to turn back on. So they're coming back. They're they're resurrected mm. in a sense, coming back to life. And but then it went like it was there and gone for just a second, and I was like. What just happened? <laughs> like that was freaky, and so and then some other people were, you know, spoke and said some really interesting things. One person told me, quoted Brene Brown, said that the opposite of uh, faith is not doubt; it's certainty. Because what need have the certain for faith? And, right. Uh, which now a lot of people attribute to me on the internet, which is a big problem. Um, because I didn't say it. Yeah. Uh, well, but, you did have 60 aliases. That's I mean, so. <laughs> true. That's true. So, well, then we did the conference, and I didn't know where I was at. I, went, I wasn't a believer again. I guess I just had the door open for the first time in quite a while. Um, and then we, like, had dinner all together, which was amazing. And then we went downstairs, and there was, like, bread and wine set up for Eucharist. I was like, oh, we're going to do the cheesy youth group, like, in the retreat on a high emotionally manipulative note. Maybe a campfire after Right, like, exactly. Yeah. Like, are we going to do a trust exercise, too? Is yeah. that how this is going? So, Everyone's eyes open. Everyone looking around. So, like, and it, Rob started to introduce the Eucharist with physics, which got me interested. I'd never heard of the Eucharist compared to physics before, so I actually paid attention. And then he talked about, like, you know, anyway, I'm trying to not, because it's such a long story, I'm fast-forwarding. But so he basically invited people, if you didn't know what to pray, 
and he didn't say Mike, but he said, if you don't know what to pray, uh, just pray, how could I be broken and poured out for others like Jesus was broken and poured out for me? Mm-hmm. So I thought I'd be true to the spirit of the exercise, and I like, I was like, no, wait. Because I'd stopped praying at this point. So I was like, so how do you do this again? I've got my eyes closed. I think I'm supposed to bow my head. And then what do I do? Just talk? You just talk? Is that how you pray? Like, I couldn't. It was like forgetting how to ride a bike. So I literally, in my mind, said, how can I be broken and poured out for others? And I said, and I can't say, like, Jesus was broken and poured out for me because there was no Jesus. But whatever you are, if you exist, God, how can I be broken and poured out for others? And then I'd open my eyes and looked around. And I was like, well, that was a waste of time. <laughs> um, and people, like, got up and, like, walked up to Rob. And, like, some of them, like, ha- were crying. Other people, like, had their moment with a celebrity. It was really strange. And I was like, I can't do this. Um, but if I just walk out, like, it's rude. If I go up there and fake it, all these pastors can go back to the church and tell people they saw an atheist get converted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, there's no, like, what, do I just, like, wait till I'm the last one here? And then be like, Everybody hey, Rob. around you, well, no one's going to be able to hear it, but they're just all gone. <laughs> Ryan has his arms crossed, nodding his head approving. With a frown smile. Yes. That's called. Frown smile. We so, got him, everyone. We got exactly. Him. And I didn't want to do that because I thought atheism was important. Yeah. And I thought that I maybe had made some progress in this room with these people understanding that their perspective on atheism was wrong. So... Finally, I'm like, well, I, I guess I'll just go up there because most people are gone, and I don't, I don't know. I'll just go up there and see what happens. So I like walk up there, and Rob like starts crying, and I was like, oh, that's weird. And like, this is how detached I was. According to my friend Stratton, who was there, I was crying as I walked up, and I felt. Nothing. How, how is that? I was how fun, is because that? the human consciousness is a, a set of hundreds of thousands of independent neurological feedback loops. And it is totally... Our cohesive narrative experience is a lie told to us by our left prefrontal cortex that oh. it's in charge. And we're just one experience. But right now, you are doing thousands of things you are unaware of. If I take this notepad and throw it toward one of your faces... You'll reach up and grab it, yeah. not because you made a conscious choice, because some lower part of the brain went, Danger Will Robinson, grab the president of your brain, the prefrontal cortex, by the back of his fancy suit collar and shove him on the ground and said, we got this. Afterwards, the president stands up and says, yeah, I've chose that. That's what I wanted to <laughs> So are you saying that same mechanism that keeps you from getting hit in the face with a notebook is the mechanism that caused you to walk I'm saying my brain. lower emotional brain was in a state of trauma, and my prefrontal cortex... Hmm. The jerk that it is, the tyrant of my brain, refused to even acknowledge oh, those no, feelings. Man, that's it said sorry. Like if, if you've seen Inside Out, yeah, yeah. in my brain, the emotions <laughs> aren't even allowed in the control room. There's just a robot who goes, yes. "Okay, Joy, stand right there for 45 seconds. If you stand there too long, I swear to God, I'll call security again." <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> right. That's my brain. Like I have feelings because I go. I'll let myself feel that right now. Oh. So, so that's what happened in this room. You know, sadness was just like 
Feelings. Trying to reach the control room in the garden. Feelings like can be a useful her device. With a right. Oh boy. So so I walk up, and Rob holds this piece of bread, and <laughs> this is the best interview I've ever done. So um, so the the uh, he holds out this piece of bread, and he goes, "This is a body of Christ broken for you." And this is like a metaphor, like he's, it's a gift offered. I have to take. And I like have this existential crisis. Like I can't take that bread because there was no body. Mm. There was no body broken for me. It is unethical for me to take this piece of bread and not believe that. Right? Like I'm. If I take that, I'm lying, and I believe honesty matters largely because I'd read a book called Lying by Sam Harris, which made a secular case for why honesty is essential and ethical. Um, and so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna yeah, do this. Yeah. And I just made the decision to turn around and walk away. Uh, I hate this part of the story because I get like I get emotional retelling it every time, which I don't know why it should have been pretty dissociated by now as many times I told it, <laughs> and it sounds crazy. So, but whatever. So I hear a voice speak to me audibly. A male voice in English, by the way, not Arabic or, or Hebrew. And it says, <laughs> I think it is without tears. I was here when you were eight. I was there when you were eight. And I'm here right now. And I was like the bullied kid. So everyday recess would happen. And even though I'm an extrovert and social, if I stayed with the other kids, I would get beat up, made fun of, whatever. So I would run as fast as my chubby legs would carry me to these trees on the edge of the playground and literally hide for 22 mm. minutes. Mm. But I was lonely. Yeah. So the only person for me to talk to was a Jewish rabbi who hadn't been on earth in 2,000 years. <laughs> so I would spend 22 minutes every day talking to Jesus about why the, it was a beautiful day, about what I thought about nature or science, or why he made me so fat that I couldn't make any friends. And, <laughs> dang it, I did so well. <laughs> and then in that moment, I was reminded by that voice that my best friend was Jesus. <laughs> and so I took this bread and I dipped in the cup and I, I, I ate it. And I, I literally ran from the room weeping. Oh, my goodness. Like, couldn't see tears. And uh, I didn't know what I believed about anything because that was a weird experience. So, I, like, I literally, as I'm running out, on one level, I'm going, I love you so much. And on another level, I'm going, well, you've had some kind of auditory hallucination. <laughs> yes. You may need a CAT scan. I gotta I mean, go back and touch the Voyager spacecraft that's in the, the hangar. I have to. It'll help. And those are happening at the same yeah. time. Yeah. These two competing loops in my uh, brain. And so. What a mind job. Then I like, I like, come back because my hotel room is a surf hotel. There's nothing in there and. Like, I don't, I just sit at this table and I start writing a letter to God and like this pastor comes and sits with me, her name's Sarah, and just like gives me a hug and says, welcome back. And I'm like, what does oh, that man. mean? Back to what? Yeah. And all these people are coming out and telling me, welcome back. I'm like, well, I'm, do I get a team jersey now? What happened? 
And so, like, I'm just so conflicted. So the pastors invite me out for drinks, which is a Baptist. This is a new thing. Pastors like, yeah, let's go to the bar. And so we go to a bar, and we get a couple drinks, and I'm in this fragile emotional state. But they're all, like, they have this moment where they can ask the science questions they have and have been afraid to ask people. And so literally, like, well, how do we know how old the universe is? How do we know? Da, da, da? And I, like, end up standing on a booth in a bar in Laguna Beach explaining, like, the WMAP space probe to a bunch of pastors to the point that locals stop congregating around us for, like, what is going on? Well, we're a bunch of pastors, and he likes science. What? So we do that for a couple hours. And then... Uh, Everybody has like flights the next day, and I'd booked a little extra time uh, because it was like Laguna and L.A. and, Why not? and I had a me- actually had a meeting with one of our corporate offices, um, and the the day after, the day after, in a couple of days. So, um, so I just went out on the beach because I just I like I couldn't go to my hotel room because I just didn't know what was happening with my life, and I'm not a person that's like real comfortable just going. Well, I don't know. Or it sure wasn't then. Yeah. Because I'd like found this new certainty. My certainty was there is no God. The universe is natural. And now I've had this like experience that subverts that assumption. So now I'm like, oh, I do not want to be a nihilist again. I got to go figure this out. So I walk out on the beach. It's kind of overcast. It's dark. So because it's overcast and really late, the light dome of Los Angeles really isn't doing its thing. The clouds are blanketing all that that on the light of civilization. So the ocean's dark and the sky's dark and it's just black. And I can hear the waves, but I can't really see them. And I thought, as a metaphor for God, a massive force I can't see, I'll do right now. So I start to pray toward the ocean. And it's, it's not a real uh, kumbaya prayer. Um, cause it's like, God, whatever that means, I don't know who you are. I don't know if you exist. I don't know what relationship you may have to the Bible. Um, none of that makes sense to me. If you're real and you literally answered my mom's prayer that a miracle would happen by putting me in a room with one of the most famous pastors in the United States. And yet I know for a fact some other mother is praying in a war-torn country that her child will not starve to death. Mm-hmm. That prayer is not getting answered. That's pretty warped. Yeah. Like, I can't understand how you can be real and not be evil. Um, I can't tell you, like, suddenly I accept the Bible again or I'm going to follow the Ten Commandments. Um, I'm not sure what any of that stuff means to me. Um, all I know is I have missed talking to you and I've missed feeling like I feel right now that somehow you really are with me. So I would like to offer to you, mysterious creator of everything, a bargain. Take it or leave it. I will pledge my life to making this world better and more peaceful. I will do everything I can to find out as much about you as I can so that I can serve you better. Not in any 
scriptural context. I'm not going to promise I'm going to take the writings of Paul seriously. He seems weird. <laughs> but that was in the prayer. But I'll serve, but I will also keep asking questions. And oh, nothing's out of bounds. Oh, man. And there's no way I'm getting boxed into some specific nonsensical mm. proposition about who you are. And on your end, we just keep talking. Oh, man. And I said, I don't know what's happening in my life. All I know is that tonight, I met Jesus again. And when I said Jesus, the Pacific rushed forward. I was standing up by the hotel, which was up higher. The tide was receding. It was not coming in. And this wave rushes up the beach and washes all the sand off of my feet. And the last thing Robin said to introduce the Eucharist was that Christ's final act of service before the cross was to wash the feet of his followers. And in those waves, somehow, I felt the hands of this Jesus. And it was such an odd sensation. And it, it so went against the way I saw the world that I said out loud, is this really happening? And as soon as I said that, the world fell away. Um, and there's no language to describe what happened, but it was a, a metaphor I use sometimes, or actually quite often these days, is if you're ever a little kid and you like hid under your bed sheet and the lamp was on in your room, right. like maybe before bedtime, it, if you pulled your head up and that sheet got, sheet got pulled tight, you could kind of see light in an image yep. on the other side. Yeah. And like, like reality did that. And on the other side of that sheet was what I can only call the glory of God or a divine light. And all time fell away, all space fell away, and I felt one with God. And through God, I felt one with all of life on earth. I felt like suffering made sense in some strange way. Um, and I just felt a profound peace. Now, what I'm describing has been well-documented in science. It's called a mystical experience. You can Google it. You're going to find that there's seven characteristics of a mystical experience. I had never heard of it at the time, but all seven apply, especially the one that says people have a mystical experience report that their life was never the same after that moment. Mm. And that has absolutely been my experience. My life has never been the same since that moment on the beach. Now, what's interesting is I didn't have any additional clarity intellectually about God. What I had was an experience that wiped my slate clean. And I didn't know how to describe God. I only knew that that was God. So I had no question that God existed. I just had no idea who or what God was. Oh, my goodness. And um, this, this troubled me for a long time until I came across some brain research. And basically, there is, um, in the 60s and the 70s, 
researchers were trying to figure out epilepsy because it was a life-threatening conditioning for some people. And they figured out that an epileptic seizure is a feedback loop between the two hemispheres of the brain, right? Because you have a left brain and a right brain, uh, and they control opposite halves of your body. And the corpus callosum is a channel of nerves that allows the two to communicate with each other. And so they, in desperation for one particularly serious patient, severed the corpus callosum, which for brain surgery is relatively simple because the brain's in two halves. Sure. So you can literally get a scalpel finger. You don't damage any gray matter. You just cut the corpus callosum. And now the two halves of the brain don't have this thick channel of nerves to communicate. Um, I had no idea what would happen to this patient. And he woke up and he was fine. He was normal. Uh, and they did this several more times. It was so successful that there was some discussion about preemptively cutting the corpus callosum of all epilepsy patients huh. um, because it stops epilepsy. But as time went on, one of these patients um, had recovered and gone back to work. He came home one day and he went to give his wife a hug. Um, and his uh, right arm went to reach around her as normal and his left arm punched her across the face. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and his wife was shocked. Yeah. You guys are. It is fun. It is. So laughter is an emotional release mechanism. So there's a reason we laugh at unexpected things. It's not just a humor response. <laughs> Think about it. It's hilarious. It is Jonathan, hilarious. stop laughing. None of so, the rest of us are. So, so here's the thing. She was shocked like you guys are. But he was more shocked because he didn't have any intention to punch his wife. Oh my God! I just punched my. So another another female patient was going into her closet to get dressed, and she reaches up with her right arm and grabs a dress and starts to walk out of the closet. And her left arm shoots out, grabs a different dress, yanks it clumsily off the rack, and presses her right arm against the wall until she drops the dress. At which point. She's able to put on this second dress with no problem. Another woman, every time she would try to leave a room, would open the door with her right hand, and her left hand would shut it. And open the door, shut it. Worrying open sides the door, of the brain. Shut it. Or when she would try to get dressed or undressed, she'd undo a button, this would button it, or vice versa. Oh, my goodness. So one man <laughs> suffered from insomnia because one night, as he fell asleep, his left hand closed around his throat. Now, your prefrontal cortex is in charge of your brain. But we say the brain's features like you have one. You have two, a left and a right prefrontal cortex. In most people, the left prefrontal cortex is dominant. But ne these neuroscientists begin to wonder, does our fully conscious left brain carry around a fully conscious mute slave on the right that is usually kept in check by the corpus callosum? They didn't know how to test this because language for most people lives in the left temporal lobe. The right temporal lobe cannot speak. Now your right temporal lobe has some capacity. It can handle, it does your interpretation of rhythm and pitch. So when you sing, it's cooperating with the left. Mm -hmm. But when you simply speak or write, your left brain is running the show. So they devised an experiment with a clever understanding of the human visual system and a monitor that they could pose questions to the left and right brains independently. Small issue, how can the right brain respond 
They trained the right brain to use the left hand and scrabble tiles. So they would pose questions to the halves of the brain independently. This is real science. How, I'm not making this how up. Do they, how do they get the right brain to use scrabble tiles? You can train, teach yourself to do anything. You just sit there and experiment and you know, try this. And you, don't, you don't tell the patient you're talking to separate halves of the brain. Right? So, but here's, here, here's what happens from their experience. So they do this and they, at, they start these trials with a, a, a student who's had this surgery who isn't out of school yet who has exhibited alien hand syndrome, for those of you listening who would like to Google this, to know that I'm oh, not making it up. Oh, believe me, I have. <laughs> and, <laughs> and so it's fascinating. they ask one hemisphere, the left hemisphere, what do you want to do when you get out of school? And he says out loud, draftsman. Completely sensible occupation. Sure. They ask the right brain, and the left hand spells out automobile racer. So the two halves of the brain did not agree what was going to happen after school. This is fascinating. Right? They asked this kid, uh, they asked, as kind of as a joke, they asked the right brain only, the question, girlfriend, question mark, and the kid's hand spells out the name of a girl. If I recall correctly, it was a research assistant. And uh, when the kid sees the name, he blushes because his left brain doesn't know what the question was. He only knows... That's a special name. How'd they get me to do that? Oh, wow. So in more recent research, they did this, and they asked a man, do you believe in God? His left brain said, no, I'm an atheist. His right brain said, yes. Oh, man. Now, this raises all sorts of interesting theological questions, like, does Jesus only live in his left ventricles? Or does half of his soul go to heaven and the other to hell? Because he is fully holding two conflicting beliefs. Now, both religious fundamentalists and atheists, new atheists, say that cognitive dissonance, holding contradictory belief, is unhealthy and unnatural. And I would argue that nothing is more symptomatic of a functioning human brain than conflicting beliefs because here we have a scientific case of a man who was both a believer and an atheist at the same time and learning that brought a profound sense of peace to me because I know exactly what it's like to have part of my brain fully believe a man came to this earth who was the incarnation of God who died and was resurrected again who cares about me personally and have another set of loops in my brain go, no way, that's crazy. And the way I have created peace between my Christian mysticism and my atheism is to stop trying to let one of them win and to let the Christ in me be called towards the suffering of the poor, to believe that resurrection gives us hope that this universe is going somewhere at the same time. I let my atheist examine the decisions I make and to evaluate things through suffering and consent and secular morality, I use both lenses at the same time. And somehow when I do, life comes into sharper focus. Ugh. So human. we have this saying here Woo! at this church. <laughs> when something, when something works inside us so much that we don't quite know what to do with it, we just... Simply say, we're quietly delighted. <laughs> it's usually accompanied by the body motion. 
<laughs> I that might that is it. I'm, That's the most important thing I've heard in, in, in I a have very firework long. inside <laughs> of me. It's so, bang, um, bang. <laughs> what? Oh, but wait, I, okay, yeah. Should we close in prayer and sing a hymn? Yeah, we need to do something. I still want to ask my... my you have to, you my, have to. And Marley wants to ask a question, too. That's important because I think as, as pastors, how many times do people come to us and say, and say to us, I don't believe anymore. I don't yeah. believe. And because I don't believe anymore, I'm not going to come to church anymore. And and you're, and I know I say, and I know you guys say similar things, but it's okay. It's okay. You can still be here. You can still work on this. You can still figure this out. No, I can't. I'm done because I don't believe. So I, I can't figure this out any longer. And what you did is you just gave. I'm just confessing to a pastor. Which is funny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, well, but that's part of it, right? Because. Because when I, when I, you, you gave this, there is physical evidence that says that that you aren't this way, that, that you still can participate yeah. and be a part of this thing, and it's okay. Even if you have these doubts, it's beautiful. I, I no longer want to sever my corpus callosum. <laughs> so the, the quote that, that really popped into my mind when you're talking about that quote by Gandhi, not super popular quote, but um, the quote is, God is conscious. God is conscience. He is even the athe- atheism of the atheist. Um, I, what you just said about, but yeah, this might sound strange. My brain is my friend, both sides of it, mm. and um, whatever God is, He's happy that my brain is fighting with itself. Mm. Yeah. Our our uh, kids pastor Marley wanted to ask a question, and she's been in the room as a special guest. So go ahead. Uh, I have many questions, uh, but talking about the different hemispheres of the brain reminded me when I was in school. I took a, I was in like gifted classes, and I took a test to figure out which part of my brain was dominant and so what kind of person I was Mm. um and the the way it was presented to me was that the left side of your brain was creativity and was like artistic and the the right side of your brain was all about order and analyzing things and I came out very solidly in the right brain which then hearing you talk seems kind of strange. So typically, one, that whole model is a little outdated neurologically, but, but when that model was Vogue, the, most people believed that the left brain was the ordered one, the right brain was the creative one. That's really oversimplified, and a lot of that's been subverted as we can do better brain imaging. Um, um, in, in general, a, a more accurate way to frame that. Now, number one, depending on the person, sometimes the left brain does what most people's right brain does. So that's one thing. Like, it's not, when we talk left brain, right brain, we're talking about a generalization of the aggregate of humanity. Some people have normal brain function, but it's mirrored. So in general, the left brain looks with greater specificity and focus and the right brain looks more expansively. And it's actually the interplay between both of those that produces the traits we've traditionally described as right brain or left Mm -hmm. brain. There's not any, 
any such thing. Now there is brain dominance that goes along with your handedness, but that's not statistically linked to how logical or creative you are. You see what I mean? So anything the brain does is through uh, a communication, a cohesion of many different unrelate or many different parts of the brain in both hemispheres. Music, for example, is a fantastic example of something that is a whole brainscape making it happen. Someone who's musical, they're not right-brained. They're whole-brained. Mm. Which is interesting in itself. It's almost like the brain itself has to come to a consensus on something in order to feel or do or... And the other thing I would want to say is that when all of us in the room are kids, and it actually doesn't matter how, how old you are for this to be true, as long as you're at least like 20, we were in the... Um, like platonic era of brain science. Like right now, we're like Galileo. Like there's so much unknown. We are looking at the brain through the most primitive telescopes, but it's the first time we've had telescopes. So even some of the things that I'm saying right now, in 15 years, people are going to listen and go, oh, that's ridiculous. Well, that's really wrong. <laughs> that's, yeah. Does but, that make sense? Yeah, but so the, the right brain looking at things kind of holistically coming out in those experiments is the one that said, yes, I do believe in God. That's kind of interesting. Yeah. Oh, wow. I love when people head trip me with their questions. Yeah, the right brain, the holistic thinker was the one who believed that God was out there. And and the more focused and your left, your left prefrontal cortex is a pretty rational machine. It's pretty emotionless. Um, it's the one. So that, and that make that actually makes some sense because again, if you remember, I said that that people's image of God is a feeling slash experience neurologically. Right. Uh, so you're when you analyze things, you recondition brain states. Um, so this this applies to everything in your life, not just your faith. So let's talk about marriage for a second. If when people have marriage problems, what do they tend to do? They tend to analyze the problem. Well, when you picture something and then analyze it, you de-emphasize the amygdala response and the anterior cingulate response to that idea. So if you analyze something enough, you take the feeling out of it. So if all you do is think about why you and your spouse are having trouble, you take your neuro model of spouse and take the feeling away from it. And suddenly you say, what? I don't feel like we're in love anymore. Well, of course you don't. You like rationally destroyed your own feelings. You haven't been so the best that. thing you yeah. can do, you have to resolve the problems. You have to do therapy, yes, but you also need to work on just the feeling slash experience of the relationship. So if you're having relationship problems, in addition to thinking about the problem, at least as much you want to do things like hold hands and walk down the street mm. and share a meal and do experiential things that recalibrate the brain's image of the relationship and the person, right? So this applies equally to God. So you can imagine that in this person that was split brain, their very analytical left prefrontal cortex had melted away the feeling and experience of God. But because the corpus callosum was severed, that left analysis could not reduce that image in the right side of the brain to the wow. same extent. Wow. And so the right prefrontal cortex said, yeah, of course there's a God. Wow. So I should hug my wife, then punch myself in the face. <laughs> <laughs> <Is> that... <laughs> oh, so, man, that's a great question. Thank you. So as long as people are like, 
I'm not going to say anything the whole th- whole time until the end. That that's, I have the most that's, to that's say. That's Marley. That's Marley. <laughs> she. Okay, so we we moved through. And just so you know, we have a little bit of time left. It's 1:30 right now, so we want to we want to think about closing this out or wrapping up. So I I think this will be a great last question. I th- I agree with you. I think yeah. it's the one that I, we're going to ask. Um, so we you talked about your. Um, your journey, your whole experience moving from to got got you where you are now. Um, I think to some people listening, uh, wherever they are on the God spectrum, um, could take away from what you're saying that God is uh, something that exists in the brain without the brain. God is not uh, available. What would your... I'm very interested to know your answer to the question. So the way... Let me tell you how I would answer... How I answer it for people. Um, In my lobby answer at church would be God's the creator and sustainer of all things. You know, that would be a lower level answer to if I'm sitting in a group of theologians or, or thinkers, I would say uh, God is objective reality that we perceive subjectively through um, our, our bodies, our brains, whatever. If you, how would, how do you describe the substance is the wrong word, but it's the, the, the closest word I can get to. What is God? Is God ghost? Is God? <laughs> is God? That's Higgs a good boson? last question. Is God? Uh, the singularity. I, yeah. Is God? Is God light? Is God love? Like, get give me a, a substance answer. Like, um, I can't give you a fluff answer. If the, if that's the answer. <laughs> no, um, I'm Because you have people that believe that. Yes. You know. Yes. God is. A material, perhaps, uh-huh. or God is a uh-huh. a ghost with some sort of boundaries. Or God is um, a triune uh, being with sure. three personas. Or I mean, uh, some people believe God's an extraterrestrial. So I mean, yeah. um, how would you? How do you define that now, having gone through the whole experience? Yeah. So first of all, to be clear, when I say God in your brain. That does not imply there's not a God out of your brain. Okay. So you have a neurological... I have a neurological model for Jenny, my wife. That does not mean Jenny doesn't exist outside of my head. It's merely that if a neuroscientist asked me about my wife, and I was in a brain scanner, he could map where my understanding of my wife lives in my skull. In the same way, we can map neurologically where God lives in people's skulls. Um, and that process is insightful and helpful, but it does not speak to God's existence in any objective sense. Right. Yeah. Aside from, it proves people believe in God. That's what it proves. And it makes your brain the subjective mechanism yes. that by which God's perceived. So that was a real problem for me, and um, that I found this mysticism. I didn't even know what mysticism was. I'd never heard of it. But I, I was one. It was only later I realized, oh, there's a word for this. 
I'm going to start using it. This is what I am. And uh, but <laughs> I, I I'm an odd combination in that I'm an empiricist as well. So an, as an empiricist is a is a particular type of philosophy that undergirds science typically. And empiricists place confidence in a belief that's proportional to the evidence they have to support the belief. So an extraordinary claim like God exists yeah. requires an extraordinary amount of evidence depending on how you describe God. I realized pretty quickly as an atheist that most debates about God were useless because people were all using different definitions for the word. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So I found myself not as an agnostic, but an agnostic, meaning we can't even have a discussion until we define the terms better. So in order to have a discussion, I realized I had to define God. Well, that's an issue. I'm an empiricist, and a lot of the claims about God, I don't have the evidence to back up, even if they resonate with me. And because of that, my own prefrontal cortex, early in my reconversion, started to assault my newly reactivated neurological God image. So I needed some fence to hold that tyrannical robot in my brain (laughs) at bay to allow myself to enjoy the feeling of knowing God. So I came up with something. Um, I call it a scaffold. I don't really use it much anymore, but when I'm asked this question, this is where I go, and other people have found it incredibly useful. I created a set of axioms, Mm -hmm. a set of propositions, which are empirically verifiable, that define faith. Um, I had them all memorized for a while, but I don't use them as much. If you can Google science mic axioms, they're on my blog. I think Travis has them memorized. But (laughs) mine for God, I would say, that um, God is at least, and I say at least, meaning that this idea is incomplete. If I were to describe gravity, I know there's a lot we don't know about gravity. And so I'm saying, I know there's a lot I don't know about God. Right. I'm just, I'm starting with that. So God is at least the set of forces that created and sustained the universe. That was my first definition. But it falls short in a very critical way. Why do people experience those forces in a special way when they call them God? Because neurologically, we're understanding that when you experience reality believing in God, it is neurologically distinct from other ways of experiencing reality. Um, That even an atheist who meditates regularly and is open to wonder does not have the same subjective experience that a true believer does. So I had to incorporate this God that I knew and I experienced into my definition. So then I said, God is at least the set of natural forces that created and sustained the universe as experienced via a psychosocial model in human okay. brains. And But that's not it. Because that's not orthodox Christianity. That's actually, if you ask some Christians, heretical. Um, and so I added a little more justification to my axiom by saying, even if that's all God is, belief in God can promote healthy brain development and positive social behaviors that impact humanity for good. So I get boxed in and I have to define God. 
that's where I start. Now, I actually think I've probably evolved that definition a little bit more based on some more research. The most recent stuff's on my website. Um, but in there, baked right in is a posture of humility. Um, because that's what I can prove about God. It's not very much. I experience much more. Right. Um, but even if that's all I can get to today, or if someone listening struggles with doubt, and I say, I can get behind that, but absolutely nothing more, the even if you're not wasting your time when you pray and yeah. participate in Christian mm-hmm. fellowship. Agreed. Agreed. Awesome. Amen. <laughs> nerdy, nerdy, nerdy podcast. <laughs> a, a, ner- a nerdy podcast, and as people who, who talk to... All of us in this room talk to people who wrestle with faith, question faith. In some cases, they're still questions. Yeah, in some cases, are certain with faith. You know, I want to say thank you because I I think what you've done is you've allowed people, you've given people permission uh, to open up the journey uh, a little bit more, to experience a little bit more in it, and that's really important. So thank you so much for being here for doing that. Uh, We're really grateful. Thanks for having me. This has been a lot of fun. Good. We usually, after we have a meeting in this room. It'll only take about five more minutes. We mud wrestle. Okay. So, um, I think I've probably got a pretty pretty good body size advantage over most of the rooms. So that could go well for me. Thank you for doing this. Thanks so much. Awesome. And, uh, man, we'd love to have you back another time. Another time soon. So. Dude, I'm in. Great. Thanks for listening to Science Mike Part 2 on Midrash NYC. Hey, if uh, some of what Mike said is intriguing to you or brings up questions for you or has you thinking about faith again, we'd love for you to join us at Forefront Church. Uh, We have a location in Brooklyn and a location in Manhattan. You can find out more by going to ForefrontNYC.com. Join us next week as we interview another great thinker, a great writer, a great former pastor who wrote a book called Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God. We'll see you soon. Thanks again. Thank you.